This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in the show, our TV critic Ella Taylor will talk about the new Aaron Sorkin film, Trial of the Chicago 7. That, of course, was the trial of the leaders of the protests at the Democratic National Convention in 1968, the trial where Bobby Seale of the Black Panther Party was bound and gagged in the courtroom for insisting on his right to have a lawyer. The film stars Sasha Baron Cohen as Abby Hoffman. It opens on Netflix tomorrow, Friday. But first, Pramila Jayapal. She represents Seattle in the House of Representatives, and she describes herself as a lifelong organizer. She's co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus and a member of the Judiciary Committee and the Budget Committee. And she's written a wonderful book, Use the Power You Have, A Brown Woman's Guide to Politics and Political Change. Pramila Jayapal, welcome to the program. John, thank you so much for having me. Recently, you faced off with Attorney General Barr in a Judiciary Committee hearing. Barr told your committee he believed that voting by mail on a large scale presented what he called, quote, a high risk of massive voter fraud. And Trump tweeted last week, the 2020 election will be totally rigged if mail-in voting is allowed to take place. This is one of more than something like 70 attacks he's made against voting by mail since March. How many people in your state of Washington vote by mail? Everyone in our state votes. We've had mail-in voting for years now. We're one of the states that's had it for the longest period of time. And when Bill Barr tried to say that voting by mail causes fraud, I submitted for the record an MIT study that uh, looked at the 250 million ballots that were cast by mail over the last 20 years and looked at the voter fraud rate. It was 0.00006%. So I was just talking to the speaker about this actually today because we are trying to make sure we get into the next relief package, the ability to get money to the postal service, to um, to make sure that we have money that goes to states for uh, mail-in voting so that people can vote and not put themselves in harm's way in the midst of a pandemic. You know, there's an ironic thing here. In, in the past, Republican voters have been more likely to vote by mail than, than Democrats. So it appears that the biggest effect of Trump's attack on voting by mail may be to reduce the Republican turnout on, on Election Day. But A lot of us are worried about the declining ability of the Postal Service to deliver all of the mail uh, right now. What is happening to the Postal Service? Well, you know, there's been a longer standing issue with the Postal Service that has to do with the formula that was used to say that they needed to have money in reserve to cover pensions. And it was a, it's a ridiculous formula that makes it seem like the Postal Service doesn't have enough money when in fact the Postal Service is doing fine. Um, but that formula needs to be changed. Now, separate from that, that meant that the Postal Service has ended up in this place where it desperately needed funding. Republicans have refused to provide that funding. And certainly in this moment where there's so much more being done by mail and the Postal Service 
service we have to recognize is the one service that is serving red and blue districts, urban and rural. They go to some of the tiniest towns. And that's why Amazon and FedEx actually contract with USPS to get mail. So Republicans, I think this is a concerted effort to undermine the Postal Service so that they can't deliver the ballots, the mail-in ballots on time, so that they can disrupt the elections. And I, I think it's a very callous way to undermine the elections. The Speaker is very aware of this. That's why we're fighting to make sure the Postal Service gets $25 billion so that they can deliver the mail in this critical moment, including our ballots. The most dramatic problem that we've seen recently is the New York primary. This is a state that's governed by Democrats. No evidence of deliberate voter suppression or, or, or fiddling with the count. If it's a preview of November, we're, we're in a lot of trouble. The New York Democratic primary was held on June 23rd. There's two key congressional races that have not yet been called because of a backlog of mail-in ballots. Uh, that's more than six weeks ago. Six weeks from election day is December 15th, that's one day after the Electoral College meets to declare the winner. I know New York is not your state, but I'm sure you're worried about New York like, like the rest of us. What is going wrong in New York? And I know you've talked about more funding to make sure the post office can collect and, and deliver absentee uh, ballots. Is that is that the whole problem in New York or is there more? No, many states, you know, unlike Washington state where we have vote by mail, you can send in your ballot until eight o'clock as long as it's postmarked on the day. Um, you can submit your ballot until eight o'clock the night of election day. And uh, we still get our results. I mean, they do trickle out and sometimes you have a close race and it might take several days for that to fully be counted. But um, our systems are updated. We can track ballots. We have a little thing you tear off the top so you can make sure that your ballot has been submitted, that it's been counted. Um, we know how many counters we need to look at the ballots. We have a system in place, but all of our machines are updated as well. And so the counting happens much faster. Many states did not have mail-in voting as their primary form of voting. So it was an alternative, but not that many people used it. And New York is an example of a state like that. So now this year, when everybody used it, they were not ready. They did not prepare. I don't know enough to know whether it was outdated equipment, not enough counters. I don't know what the what the problem was. But this is something we have to be very careful about because you can imagine if it takes two weeks or three weeks to declare an election, Trump is going to misuse that time and do everything he can to undermine the democracy. And so we've got to be able to get money to states to upgrade their voter systems and to be able to prepare for um, learning from states like mine how to do this effectively, efficiently and get it done. Well, it seems like most people will need to vote by mail in the November election, but we will still need in-person voting. And of course, a lot of people who are often volunteer to be uh, poll workers don't want to do it this year because of health reasons. They're often older or, and uh, they're declining to volunteer. Uh, what can we do about making sure that in-person voting remains viable on the week of the election? 
Well, I think, you know, this is a tough question. Most of the people that have been at the polls have been older folks who are who have been doing it for years. And so it means we're going to have to train up a whole new group of people, ideally young people um, who are less at risk of getting the virus. But I do think that at the end of the day, we need to try to get as many people to vote by mail or vote early as possible. So if we were to spread it out, then you would have, because you can't have the same numbers of people just lining up and being right next to each other when this pandemic is occurring. So we should try to get people to vote early. We should try to get people to vote by mail. We need to train um, and really develop a whole new group of younger poll voters who don't have pre-existing conditions and aren't as much at risk um, for contracting the virus. But this is going to be tough. Um, and again, I'm just so fortunate to live in a state where we had the, our primary election was last night and we had, you know, incredibly high turnout because everybody knows how to do it. We've been doing it for, for years. We know how to do it. People are aware of it. Now they're at home. So actually the rates went up of voting. I think because people are at home, they've got their ballot. They can look through the voter pamphlet, figure out who they want to vote for, perhaps with more time than they have in the past. Well, unlike a lot of other countries, voting in the United States is not organized by the federal government, except for setting the day of the presidential election. It's under state law, and it's the county registrars of voters who organize the actual uh, polling. Uh, so this is not really something that Congress is even in charge of. So how do you see your role in relation to the you know federal system that we have in the United States? Well, we are responsible for ensuring that federal elections are, um, are uh, you know, pulled off, are, are uh, allowed to happen. And so that does mean that we can help states to, that's why we have passed several bills that will help states to upgrade their, their machines, invest in the infrastructure, the voting infrastructure, um, and also now what we're trying to do is ensure that all federal elections are vote by mail elections or have a vote by mail option. Um, and so that is a federal role. I did happen to just be talking to Senator Warren about this actually just today, earlier today. And um, I will say that I think that when we do take power again in the government, which I hope will be very, very soon, um, I do think we should look at the federal government federalizing some pieces of our election system, recognizing that if we have a, you know, a, a horrible constitutional destroying president, again, that may be a problem, but I also think that there is a real role for the federal government to play in ensuring that federal elections are, um, are able to proceed and that states have what they need to ensure accurate counts and accurate systems. You criticized his sending federal forces to Portland to attack people protesting police brutality. In contrast to his failure to act, I'm quoting you here, when white men with swastikas stormed a government building in Michigan with guns, close quote. Uh, since that hearing, federal forces have pulled out of Portland, or at least pulled back. And what was the result? Things got better. Shock, shock, shock. When you don't put militarized agents in front of people who are trying to protest peacefully, uh, things get better. And I think that is the thing that we have seen over and over again since the Black Lives Matter protests, is that um, unfortunately the response, including in some progressive cities, 
was to send out a militarized response, which was exactly what the protesters were protesting to start with. But my um, questioning of Bill Barr was about the discrepancy between how he and the Department of Justice treated the protesters at Lafayette Square, right when the first protests uh, came about, and when Trump decided he wanted a photo op in front of a church. And so Bill Barr ordered people to, quote, get it done, to clear the protesters, to go out aggressively and offensively with shields, push people out of the way, pepper bombs, tear gas, um, and, you know, that kind of aggressive response. Now, contrast that with the response when there were protesters swarming or storming the Michigan Capitol with guns and swastikas and Confederate flags, then Bill Barr wasn't even aware of what was happening when they were calling for the governor to be beheaded and lynched. So very different responses to the president's opponents versus to those who are actually engendering his agenda. Well, your new book tells the story of how you got into political work. You are an immigrant from India who came to the United States in 1982 to go to college. You were not yet 17 years old. You know, my dad had very little money in his bank account. I talk about this. He had $5,000 left in his bank account. He used all of it to send me here. And when your parent makes a sacrifice like that and sends their kid across the ocean, not knowing if they're going to come back, as it turns out, we've never lived on the same continent (laughs) since I was 16. They're still in India. You know, he had a very special idea of what success meant. To him, success meant you're going to be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer, because that was what would guarantee your future financial stability. Well, you started out by doing what your father wanted when you graduated. You applied for jobs in investment banking. Uh, I love the story you tell about how in one of your job interviews, you were asked what you would do in a meeting if a male colleague said, honey, go get me some coffee. What was your answer? I said I would do just what I'm going to do now. And I got up and left. <laughs> and, and, and what happened then? Well, they they called me back and they said, oh, you're exactly the kind of woman we want. You know, come back and and, uh, we'll give you a job offer. And I said, thank you very much, but no thank you. Um, And I I did not end up working for that firm. I worked for another investment banking firm in leverage buyouts um, in the mid-1980s when Mike Milken was king and leverage buyouts were really big. And I will tell you that it taught me a couple of things. First of all, it taught me what I didn't want to do for the rest of my life, and that was investment (laughs) banking. So I left, and I tell people that's very important to find out what you don't want to do as much as it is to find out what you do want to do. But the other thing it taught me was very strong skills in financial uh, analysis, financial management. I'm very comfortable with numbers. I'm very comfortable with, um, you know, all of that. And so that has really served me well, both as when I was starting a nonprofit organization that became the largest immigrant advocacy organization in Washington state, but also now serving on the budget committee, you know, coming up, talking to some of the world's best economists, uh, Nobel prize winning economist, Joseph Stieglitz, as I'm creating the Paycheck Recovery Act, 
um, I think that that experience actually really helped to build my confidence in those areas that have been quite important. Um, and certainly as I'm calling out Wall Street now, um, I understand what that means. And even questioning Sundar Pichai <laughs> from Google the other day, I talked about how the ad exchange that Google has is sort of like um, an unregulated stock market where people can, can engage in insider trading. You know, so I, I draw on these experiences all the time and what I'm doing now, even though it's not what I ended up doing with my life. So when you left investment banking, you went to the other end of society, uh, Cabrini Green in Chicago, in what is often called a bad neighborhood. But you said you liked working in a, what's called a bad neighborhood. How come? Well, I was tutoring Cabrini Green. It was was not no longer exists, but was one of um, the largest uh, projects in South Chicago. And I really wanted, I was in graduate business school, but I really wanted to do things that mattered and tutoring kids was something that appealed to me. And so I would make my trek down to South Chicago and, and being in the midst of that project, that housing project was formative because I saw how people lived and I saw the things that we needed to do as government to really provide safer environments, better housing for people. And then, of course, I got very deeply into Saul Alinsky and uh, community organizing in the south end of Chicago, working with Mary Houghton and the South Shore Bank. And I, I want to ask you about so South Shore Bank because you say one meeting there changed your life. That's pretty dramatic. What kind of single meeting could change a person's life? Well, I met Mary Houghton, who was the executive director of South Shore Bank, one of the founders. And um, she introduced me to the idea that I could use my business skills for good, that I could focus on economic development as a way to make vocation and avocation the same thing. And so that was the beginning of really opening my eyes to this whole other world. I could use my business skills, but do economic development. I ended up going to Thailand and working in refugee camps and doing rural economic development. And then, of course, eventually moving into the public sector. You have one great sentence when you uh, describe your decision to leave the private sector. You say, let's be real. It takes a lot to get rid of the pressure and expectations of your family. I think every immigrant kid in college right now knows exactly what you're talking about. How did you do it? Well, I just, um, I had to trust myself. And then I had to say to my parents, look, you've given me all of the foundations. And now you have to trust me. You have to, you have to allow me to trust myself and you have to trust me. And it was not an easy thing. And my dad, for years, even when I had started the most successful immigrant rights organization in the state, I, you know, he's there, he's meeting the governor, who's our keynote speaker, and he says, oh, yes, she likes to do this volunteer work. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it just takes a lot, you know, to, to kind of change how your parents see things. But I will say that I think that they're proud of me. They scratch their, they scratch their heads many times during my career but I just kept saying, look, this is what I want to do. This is what makes my heart happy. This is what I believe I can do to make a difference. And in the end, I had to just follow my path. So you went to Thailand and worked in a refugee camp. Then you decided to go back to India. You came back to the United States. You got married. You had a baby. You got divorced. You moved into your own place as a divorced mother. 
Your baby had health problems, and what was the date you moved? September 10th, 2001. Mm. Day before September 11th. And you say that 9-11 was the first time in America that you felt scared, and it wasn't another terrorist attack that frightened you. That's right. It was the um, hatred that I saw, um, the xenophobia that I saw, and the incursions of civil liberties ultimately by the government in the wake of the passage of the Patriot Act and so many other things. You know, the original Muslim ban was passed right after 9-11. And I saw that and I saw the sort of the, the way in which patriotism Um, you know, combines with fear to suppress dissent. So all of a sudden, all these people um, with all these hate crimes and the Bush administration actually themselves in, you know, moving forward policies that curtailed civil liberties for people just because of where you were born or what religion you practiced. And yet, if you tried to speak up against that, somehow you were on the side of terrorists. It was us versus them, and you were with them. And it reminded me of the Japanese internment and other times in our country where um, patriotism and fear together have been used, as I said, to suppress dissent. And I felt like I needed to speak out against that. And um, and so I did. What I thought originally was going to be just fighting individual hate crimes by some individuals against another very quickly turned into fighting the U.S. government, taking on the Bush administration, successfully winning um, uh, a lawsuit around the deportation of thousands of Somalis, and then going on to constantly challenge the deportations, secret detentions, and all of the things that happened in the wake of 9-11. You have a great story about uh, meeting your Seattle congressman who was the predecessors in the seat you now hold, Jim McDermott, your idea was to declare the entire state of Washington a hate-free zone. He liked the idea and said, uh, where do we start? And you said, how about tomorrow? And what was his response? (laughs) He leaned back in his chair and he looked at me and he said, who are you again? <laughs> because these are, this was just six days after 9-11, and I was saying we needed to get the governor and the mayor and everybody to come out, declare the state a hate-free st- zone. You end your book with the lessons you've learned, and the first one is own yourself and stay open. You say, don't try to be someone, try to do something. Explain what you mean. Well, I think that there are a lot of people, particularly in politics, um, who think about who they want to be, not what they want to do. And the only reason I'm, I like being a member of Congress is because it gives me a platform to do things that I think are going to make a difference for the world. And so I just want people to be authentic to themselves, to not change themselves because they think that that's going to bring them more power and prestige, but also to think about your legacy of action, not just having a title before your name. That's great. But the only reason I like the title is because it allows me to go to the airport in the wake of the Muslim ban and threaten to storm the airport if I don't get to talk to the head of customs and and border protection and get the people off the plane that are about to be deported on the tarmac, you know, or because I can use my position to get into a federal prison and talk to hundreds of moms and dads who have been separated from their children. So that's the action, and it has to be about the action. Um, And you've got to be real for who you are and what you believe in. 
And the last lesson in your book is leave space for new leadership to emerge. Don't hang on to power. But we want you to stay in power. We need you to stay in power. Well, I will stay in power for as long as I feel like there's something that I can achieve. And, you know, when I stepped down from One America, people thought I was crazy. It was 12 years. I was there as the executive director. I built it from nothing to this incredible organization that had done so much. And they said, why are you leaving? It's the height of your success. And I said, well, first of all, I'd rather leave when I'm at the height of success than when I'm on the downturn of it. Um, And secondly, you know, change is good. So it doesn't mean we're going to leave immediately. But we do have to continue to be aware that there's time for other people to come forward. And there's lots of people to come forward and do that work. Pramila Jayapal, her new book is Use the Power You Have, A Brown Woman's Guide to Politics and Political Change. Pramila, thanks for everything you do. And thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much, John. I love the nation. So thank you so much for what you do. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Return with us now to the late 60s, to 1969, to the trial of the Chicago 7. That's the new Aaron Sorkin film that opens on Netflix tomorrow, Friday. It dramatizes the trial of the leaders of the anti-war protests at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago in 1968. And it stars Sasha Baron Cohen as Abby Hoffman. I'm especially interested in the film because I wrote a book about the trial. For comment on the film, we turn, of course, to Ella Taylor. Of course, she's a longtime film critic and writer whose work has appeared in the LA Weekly, the New York Times, and at NPR.org. Ella, welcome back. Thank you, John. Glad to be here. What did you think of Aaron Sorkin's trial of the Chicago 7? Well, as you can tell by the fact that I talk funny, I wasn't around for the, uh, at least not in the United States. And it obviously it was a bigger deal here than it was in England. So I'm kind of hazy on the fact. But um, I do want to say that this is an enormously entertaining, tragic comedy. Um, the material pretty much writes itself, it's to, it, but it is uh, written and directed by Aaron Sorkin, who also did The Social Network and The Newsroom and, and uh, lots of other stuff. Uh, and I do want to start out by saying that one of the movie's great assets is that not everybody talks like Aaron Sorkin <laughs> as they do in some of his other films. It's partly a courtroom, I don't want to say drama, there are some very dramatic aspects to it, but it's also a performance piece because the yippies were involved. <laughs> um, it has an absolutely terrific cast with three British actors, which seems a little strange, but they all do very well. Um, Sasha Baron Cohen is actually kind of nicely toned down as Abby Hoffman, which I think is a very smart move because it would have been easy for him uh, to have become one of his Borat characters or, or any of the others, and he doesn't. So that we are able to appreciate 
the antics um, of Abby Hoffman in the courtroom and at the same time his deep seriousness about his mission to proclaim a cultural revolution and we can return to that later. Uh, Jeremy Strong plays um, Jerry Rubin also of the Yippies and uh, in the movie at least a little bit dim-witted. <laughs> He's kind of a, a, a nerd who's trying very hard a lot of the time. And um, Abby Hoffman really has his number here, so he plays off him very nicely. But it's a very sympathetic um, turn. Eddie Redmayne as uh, Tom Hayden, who represents the other wing of the left here, the uh, SDS wing, uh, Students for a Democratic society. Uh, he Very often when you have films about this period, uh, there's a lot of people who are wearing floor mops on their heads. <laughs> um, and that is true of, of, uh, of Hoffman and Strong, but they're quite muted uh, floor mops. So I was very grateful for that. Tom Hayden, as played by Eddie Redmayne, is also wearing quite important hair, but it's much shorter and much more indicative of the new left. The British actor Mark Rylance, who was in Bridge of Spies as, a, as the Russian spy who keeps saying, would it help if I did? Um, a brilliant Shakespearean actor plays William Kunstler, um, who is the lawyer for most of the defend defendants, but keeps insisting he's not the lawyer for Bobby Seale, head of the Black Panthers, who's very wonderfully played by Yahya Abdul-Mateen II, somebody, uh, an actor I'm not familiar with. And uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt as Richard Schultz, the upstanding prosecutor who doesn't want to be doing this job at all, does it the best he can. And Michael Keaton as Ramsey Clark, who, of course, uh, gave shocking testimony uh, in the trial. I want to single out, of course, Frank Langella, who is playing the appallingly incompetent and uh, aggressive judge in, in the case. And he's having an absolute blast doing it. Most of the movie is about the courtroom uh, drama and some parts are very funny indeed. They're taken from life. I don't want to uh, go into those scenes because they'll be a lovely surprise. And it's intercut with footage, both real and staged, of the, uh, the Democratic Convention. The accused here are, are accused of, of conspiracy to cause a riot at the 1968 Democratic Convention. And you get a timeline of events through those flashbacks. The other part, and I think that is really almost the, the most interesting part of the movie, is about the internal divisions on the left, in particular between the Yippies, who believe in the politics of disruptive performance, both in and out of the, the courtroom, and uh, the, the more conventional left politicians who are represented by um, uh, Tom Hayden. And um, there are actually some extremely heartfelt parts here that I found extremely moving. In particular, Abby Hoffman's very serious contention that culture is a very important part of political revolution and of politics in general, added to the fact that he was a born kibitzer, as is uh, Sasha Baron Cohen, who plays him extremely well. Uh, the movie does not flinch from the mistakes made by the left. Um, we do hear that it was actually not Hoffman and um, Rubin 
who incited the crowd, but Tom Hayden, <laughs> um, uh, who became so enraged by the treatment of, of uh, his partner um, that he um, said, Blood will, he made a now famous speech, um, Blood will flow, uh, and it did. Uh, it's very strong on the uh, secretive uh, espionage that was practiced both by the police and the FBI and the infiltration of those groups. It's both amusing and appalling. And uh, as always, uh, Sorkin has a great eye for the dramatic moment, not that the actual history was lacking. So I, I wonder what you thought of it, as both as a historian as a, and as a moviegoer. Well, of course, the most boring thing a historian can say about a movie is that it's not accurate. And, you know, this is not a documentary. This is an Aaron Sorkin drama. I mean, he had to condense four months of trial and four days of protests into a you know, two-hour movie. He highlights the dramatic confrontations. He rearranges things somewhat. Uh, they have Dave Dellinger, the lifelong pacifist, at the end of the trial, punch a courtroom guard. Dave Dellinger never did that. What he did was he shouted BS, the actual word that we are summarizing here. Uh, and that's what got his bail revoked. Does any of this matter? I don't think so. I think you're right. This is a dramatic, engaging, uh, wonderfully entertaining film. It's certainly sympathetic to the the protests and the protesters and the, the interest very interested as you say in the debates over strategy between the different wings of the left every minute is fascinating and it sticks with you afterwards so the fact that it is not accurate in some respects i don't think it matters do you think it matters i agree with you completely i do feel that if you are making a movie in which you name real people, you do have some obligation to the truth, but the truth is not necessarily the same as the bald facts, and that's what a dramatist does, is he brings out the truth. Um, in your book, the, your edited book, Conspiracy in the Streets, which offers also a, tra a full transcript, I believe, of the um, abridged, abridged. The full transcript is thousands of pages. Oh, we cut it down to the 200 best pages of yes. the tens of thousands of pages of four months of, of courtroom di dialogue. That would be tough. Um, <laughs> but you do give at the front of a very fascinating follow-up to what became of the actual participants. It's not in the movie, but uh, it's actually, in, in, in many respects, a really quite a tragic story. Uh, Abby Hoffman suffered greatly from, um, he, but he was bipolar and also suffered deep depressions and uh, eventually killed himself. Uh, Jerry Rubin became a stockbroker and uh, was killed crossing Wilshire Boulevard in Westwood, which may be regarded as an act of suicide in itself. Yeah. And uh, uh, there are a number of other characters who became entrepreneurs from the new left. So that's kind of pretty interesting stuff. But like you, I really enjoyed it. I do want to say that if listeners are interested in a documentary about the trial of the Chicago 7, there is one that has just come out directed by Brett Morgan, 
and uh, it's available on Apple TV, Prime, and, and uh, Fandango. Yeah, yeah there have been <clears throat> at least three earlier movies about the trial, all of which use dialogue directly from the courtroom transcript. Some of what uh, Aaron Sorkin has here is directly from the courtroom transcript, but he wrote it himself. It's a Sorkin story, not a documentary. I just want to emphasize that yet again. So if we want to get away from uh, fighting in the streets of Chicago in 1969, if we want something completely different, what would you suggest? I would suggest that we go to the fighting in the streets in a film called Martin Eden, um, which is an Italian film, although it's based on a semi-autobiographical novel by Jack London, who wrote um, a novel of that name in uh, 1909. It's about a, a young, unskilled laborer who, as we, um, who we first meet saving a rich boy from um, attack and, and uh, from drowning, uh, and is introduced to the boy's family and falls in love with the boy's cultivated sister, Elena, um, who's played by Jessica Cressy. He is played uh, by Luca Martin Marinelli, and I will um, get into his performance in a, in a minute. He hopes that by his attachment to this sister, with whom he's genuinely in love, he will advance his, his lot in life, and he... Um, uh, also very much wants to be a writer. So he becomes an autodidact, very much helped by this young woman um, who feeds him a lot of Baudelaire poetry uh, that gets him started. Uh, but he's also influenced by um, a lefty mentor, a much older lefty mentor. And so he becomes involved with the socialist worker movement, which is growing at the, at the time. His success, he succeeds in becoming a writer because it turns out he has lots of raw talent, just like Jack London. But his success makes him ill, both spiritually and physically. Luca Marinelli is this extraordinary physical presence. I mean, he's, he's, he's ultimate laborer. He's extremely handsome. He has this very virile nose <laughs> and uh, beautiful green eyes. And he projects a, both an intensity a rage and a vulnerability as his career goes on that is uh, enormously moving. It's, it's a very intense movie that suffers somewhat um, from some rather crude transitions. I mean, two-thirds of the way through, it suddenly makes this leap into where he's a literary star without telling us much of the intervening thing. But it suffers also from the rather outdated, bald, uh, workerist populism um, that uh, was Jack London's signature and which now feels rather out of date, except perhaps on the extreme right, <laughs> which is not what he would have liked at all. So it's a very beautiful film. It really is beautifully shot um, and very good on the inner conflicts of this man who is torn um, between his his affiliation with other people of his class who are fighting for uh, employment, uh, pay, and so on and so forth, 
and uh, on the other hand, his ambitions to to move above his station, and it destroys him. So where can we see Martin Eden? You can see it at Kino Marquis. Um, it's a Kino Lorba distribution, and you can see it at Kino Marquis where you buy tickets. Uh, we've mentioned this before, uh, pretty much as you would in a movie theater. And I, I, I really recommend it because it is a, a very moving and um, drama uh, that is also intellectually and politically inarticulate. <laughs> and in that sense, it's rather faithful to, uh, to Jack London. And we have time for one more. Yes, this is a film, a documentary. I guess all our, of all our films, one way or another today, are about politics of one sort or another. It's a documentary, and the first documentary put out by The Atlantic magazine um, called White Noise, uh, which opens at uh, Lemley Virtual Cinema on Friday, and it will be after, on the 21st. It opens on VOD. You can see it at iTunes. Amazon, Amazon and Google Play. Um, it's directed by Daniel Lombroso, and it's about the alt-right, uh, and it's very much keeps its head to the ground of three characters from the alt-right, uh, two of them well-known or rather notorious, um, and one of them less well-known. The two well-known ones are Mike Cernovich, who is a conspiracy theorist, who also sells lifestyle products and has a sex blog. Hey. And uh, uh, then there's Richard Spencer, who is the white power ideologue um, who endorsed the horrible events at, at uh, Charlottesville, uh, uh, who uh, lives with his mother. And uh, these are at loggerheads with each other. Each of them represents a different wing of the alt-right. Uh, and the third one is a young woman, very pretty young blonde called Lauren Southern, who is a YouTube star, who is also anti-feminist and anti-immigration. All three of these people, the movie shows, um, are primarily motivated by a ravenous hunger for attention that actually undoes them in the end. Um, they're united by their opposition to immigration. And uh, it's interesting to note that Mike Cernovich um, is married to an Iranian secular Muslim wife. Wow. And Lauren Southern it becomes, uh, lives with a non-white partner uh, and has had his child, which I don't even know what to begin to make of this, uh, and took a year out to be a mother. She goes on and on about how she can't be an activist and, and a mother. Uh, and uh, after a year, she returns to activism, probably because she wasn't getting enough attention uh, just being a mother. Um, so there's tremendous pathos in these characters. There's a, a real, the banality and, and confusion of their political ideas quite staggering. I mean, they're underdeveloped, undercooked, um, but they're, they're uh, and all three of them, their influence has declined quite radically. Cernovich these days mostly sells lifestyle products. Um, Richard Spencer, who was on domestic abuse charges, now lives with his mother and uh, allegedly has no money. And Lauren Southern took, uh, took time out. 
But, and there's a very big but here, is that this, their, their rhetorical style has been a tremendous influence on uh, the mainstream, on mainstream conservatism and has pushed it um, much further to the right. So um, on the one hand, the movie shows, you know, how pathetic they are. And on the other hand, uh, it shows how influential they are, which is something that could be said of our president too. I mean, the, the dynamic of the extreme right is very effectively shown here. Uh, and I just want to mention that uh, a new restoration of the great Fellini film La Strada made in 1954 is coming to Film Forum for one week um, as part of uh, the Fellini 100. They're going to be showing uh, 100 films for his centennial and that's highly recommended. So we've been talking about White Noise, the documentary on three leading figures from the past, recent past of the alt-right. That's on Amazon Prime. We also talked about Martin Eden, the new Italian drama based on the 1909 Jack London novel. It's at Kino Marquis, where you buy a ticket. And of course, we talked about Aaron Sorkin's Trial of the Chicago 7, which opens on Netflix tomorrow, Friday. Ella Taylor, our TV critic, thanks for talking with us today. You're most welcome, John. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of the show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.